Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. For Christians, hopelessness is not an option, so we we do have hope no matter what. I try to remind people not to engage too much in a presentist mindset, and often things feel the worst to us when we're experiencing them, (laughs) but it turns out that the deep and fractured differences in our society have been much worse in past eras of our history. Scrolling your social media feed or scanning the news sites, does it stoke fear in your heart? Or in spite of what you see, do you rest secure in a confident hope? Hi, and welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe, and as we get closer to the midterm elections, there's a lot of ads that seem to be stoking fear, anger, and division. And unfortunately, even in Christian circles, there are some who seek to cause division. Gabe, let's tackle this tough issue this week, as over the next few weeks, actually, we're seeking to do something kind of different here at Q Ideas. Explain. We're taking a break from our typical routine where you hear a talk and a talk that's been really impactful to our entire community, and you just listen to that talk, and then you move on. And the next five episodes... I'm engaging five conversations, five conversations that I believe are really important for us to continue our education and just learning how to engage in this world, how to become better human beings, how to better understand human flourishing, and how we together in this community can be a part of leading in this moment, in this current cultural season. So over the next five weeks, I'm inviting five different scholars. They represent people talking about everything from free market capitalism to Uh, pluralism to our minds and how they operate and neuroscience. So all kinds of different interesting topics. And for 20 minutes, I'm sitting down with them to pull out their best thinking about our current moment. And so stay with us over these next five weeks as we start to engage that. And for our first episode, I'm inviting back someone who's been a part of the Q community over the years, John Anazu. Now, John is a professor of law and religion at Washington University in St. Louis. His research focus is First Amendment freedoms, including speech, assembly, religion, and related topics. He's also written several books, and most recently, which we'll talk about today, co-edited Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, and he did that with Tim Keller. Now, if you've been around the Q Ideas community for a while, you know Tim has been a big part of the conversations we've created over the last 15 years. He has been part of the events. He's given talks. He's advised me in many different scenarios around how to think well about certain topics and has been a friend of this work. And because of that encouragement, I was so excited to see him and John team up to talk about pluralism. Now, this is an idea you've probably heard about, but for some people, it's not a topic they're that familiar with. It's not just everyday dinner conversation to talk about the importance of pluralism. But what I want us to do is step way back, 30,000 foot view and get a bigger picture of what's happening in our polarized world. Everybody's complaining about it. Everybody blames social media. 
Everybody feels like it just is the way it is. And I don't like the fact that there's not very proactive ways for us to think well about what a difference we can make in that. And so I'm going to invite John into a conversation where we learn a little bit about this idea of pluralism, essentially. What does it mean for us to get along with people despite our greatest differences? And what specifically we as Christians ought to be doing to be a part of the solution? And is he hopeful about that? Is he hopeful about this particular future? Yeah, so if you're not feeling hopeful about the future of our country and our world, sit back. Let's listen together to Gabe's conversation with John Anazu and think together about what it means for us to take responsibility for creating a better, more honoring and respectful society. So you've talked a lot about pluralism, and this is a subject matter that some people are very familiar with. Other people aren't. It's a word that sounds a little intellectual, academic. Um, If you haven't studied it, you may not know what it means. So I just want to start with some definitions. How would you define pluralism? And then you write about something called confident pluralism. So, So give us all of that as we kick off the conversation. Sure. So the best way into pluralism is to think of it in two distinct ways. The first is a, is the fact of difference in our world. Pluralism describes the fact of deep and irreconcilable differences that aren't going away. And some of those differences are pretty ordinary, like differences about ice cream flavors, and others are far more significant, like differences about whether God exists or what happens when you die. And the fact of difference in the world is one name for pluralism. The second way to think about it is, what do you do in response to those differences? And uh, pluralism as a political theory or a political response to those differences is one way to handle difference. Now, there are other ways, too. You could try to use brute force. You could try to withdraw and not engage with people who are different from you. But if, if you are committed to some sort of civic engagement, then pluralism is one way to engage across difference. And then in my own framing of this, the idea of confident pluralism, I I add that adjective to convey there's really two sides to this engagement with difference. One is a, a confidence in our own beliefs as we encounter difference. So this isn't kind of a squishy relativism. This is really an ability to, with confidence and an understanding of, of the depth of our own beliefs, we can engage with others across difference, but then also recognizing that people believe just as confidently as we do about other things and that we're going to encounter those differences in the world. And John, has, is America a unique space for this conversation about pluralism? And if so, how is it different than maybe how other nations and other cultures have had to process through getting along despite differences? Yeah, great question. So I think America is different in a couple of ways. One, historically, when we look at how early Americans came together at the founding of this country, the disagreements they overcame were not insignificant. So on the one hand, you can think, well, it was mostly white Protestant men in power then. How hard was that? But in fact, those white Protestant men were killing each other for those differences in other parts of the world. So the fact that deep religious differences were able to coexist in the first part of our country is, is no small thing, and that, that sets the course for part of the American experiment. And the other reason that pluralism in the United States is particularly unique and, and perhaps uh, possible 
is because of the way that we have framed constitutional rights and the Bill of Rights in particular, the First Amendment freedoms that we have for all Americans. Certainly, other countries around the world have adopted similar freedoms, many following after uh, the model of the United States. But the way and the history that we have for addressing freedoms like assembly and speech and the free exercise of religion gives us a unique context here in this country to work out some of these issues. And, uh, you know, as you have studied and talk a lot about this now and trying to paint a vision for people of how to have a pluralistic society, I mean, obviously, since I remember you writing and talking about this, things have only gotten worse, it seems, in terms of our ability to see the other in the best light and to find common ground and to to look for ways to get along versus tribalize and just find ways to disagree. As you've kind of gone through this journey over these last few years, do you have hope that we're going to we're going to almost get to the bottom and start working our way back up? Hmm. Or <laughs> like how do you how do you see this going? Like what what's the trajectory because a lot of people are becoming hopeless. I mean, they're, they're like, there's no way this is going to get better. I, I have a different view. I mean, I see the next generation. I know you're on a campus. You're seeing younger people. They don't want to live in a world that's not hopeful mm-hmm. about getting along, right? They, mm-hmm. they want something different. So are you seeing that too? And, and what's going to be our path to get there? Yeah. So uh, first point, for Christians, hopelessness is not an option. So you know, we, we do have hope no matter what. Second, I try to remind people not to engage too much in a presentist mindset. And what I mean by that is often things feel the worst to us when we're experiencing them. But it turns out that the deep and fractured differences in our society have gotten or have been much worse in past eras of our history. So this isn't the worst moment in American history. And and really, if we were to rack and stack all of the challenges from the Civil War, to the progressive era, labor unrest, to the 1960s. We've seen and been through some really difficult times in the past. Now, what is unique about the current moment, and what should, I think, give us all pause, is the way in which we are consumed by our online engagement with one another, the frequency, the volume, the algorithms, the ways in which that engagement reinforces a lot of our priors. This is something pretty new. You know, we, we don't really see similar forms of engagement in past generations. And, and so the question becomes, how do we work to get out of that? And I don't think that's answerable in a couple of days or weeks. I think we're going to have to put some serious effort into habits and practices and decisions that will reshape our engagement particularly online. And so I I guess what I want to say to your question is, yes, there's hope. There's always hope for Christians. Yes, the challenges are extremely important and hard. They're not the worst they've ever been, but there's a lot of work to do. And as Christians and Christian leaders, many of which listen to this podcast, who are representing faith and they're doing it in business communities, they're doing it in the media, the arts, politics, education. I mean, you, you name it. They're showing up in all of these spaces. And I feel like we have something unique to bring to this conversation that's motivated by faith, that's motivated by the image of God that we see in other people. And how do you see people of faith maybe being the ones right now that should be taking the step forward, be leading the charge on helping people get a new vision for how this ought to be? Yeah, I think when Christians can tap into our deeper resources from Scripture, from the example of Jesus, we we should be leading the way here. So we've already talked about hope. We can add faith and love to hope and, and recognize that we have these deep virtues that motivate us that should cause us to engage 
lavishly with those around us. And especially, and this is really important, without fear or anxiety. It doesn't mean we're not going to be uh, concerned or frustrated or face injustices. It doesn't mean that we're going to wake up and have amazing days every day. We're not. But because we're motivated by faith, hope, and love, we can engage without this fear or anxiety that is crippling so much of our society. And frankly, Gabe, I think a lot of Christians are really uh, overcome by fear and anxiety right now. And that, if there was one thing I could think of to encourage listeners to this podcast or other Christians, it would be, where are you taking your fear and anxiety? What's at the root of it? And what do you know from your own faith commitments to be the antidote to that fear and anxiety and and, and to move forward and the hope that is in Jesus that should give us a lack of fear and an excitement to engage with difference around us. Yeah, I love you calling out fear. I mean, I think it's the main driver right now. I'm sure it always has been, but it does feel um, illuminated right now that you can just see how much it's driving people's actions, reactions, protections, defensiveness, you know, you name it. In your new book that you and Tim Keller collaborated on together called Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference, I love how you just right out of the gates, talk about this central question. I want to talk to you about a little bit where you say this book's central question is how Christians can engage with those around us while both respecting people whose beliefs differ from our own and maintain our gospel confidence. That is the million dollar question. Mm -hmm. How do we, and and I feel like that's where Christians get hung up is we get asked a question by someone who has a different view of ours, doesn't have the same theological backgrounds. And we kind of quickly jump to theological answers to maybe a question about civics or a question that was um, about a hurting person needing ministered to. And we, we just start missing each other right out of the gates because we, we so fear giving up our gospel confidence, our convictions, being true to what we know to be true. You know, all of those things just jump up into the psyche and we move into a defensive mode versus a mode of like welcoming conversation where we're not quite sure where it's going to land. And that takes a lot of confidence. So as you try to answer that question throughout this project, give us give us some thoughts on what you learned. Yeah. You know, one thing that you mentioned that reminded me of something is the need to look at the person in front of us as an image bearer, as someone who wants to be known and loved. And this contrasts with I think the intuitions that some of us have to try to prove a point or win an argument. There was a form of apologetics in the 1990s that was sort of premised on the idea that if I can just give you the right five propositions, I'm going to argue you into faith. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that ever worked. It, It certainly doesn't work today where people are wanting to know, do you care about me? Do you care about what I have to say or what I think? Or are you just trying to sell me something? And so I think that when we can step back and say, this is a human being in front of me, and this is a relationship that is possible or a conversation that is about to begin and to to dive into the richness of the person rather than the project and and to see that human being that's that's one way to engage and and then I think the other one which which you mentioned in the quote the, the notion of being confident in the hope that we have and this is something that I think Tim has modeled very well in his preaching in Manhattan and others of us involved in this project have tried to do in our own vocational spaces, which is to say, you know, we we recognize that people listening to us might not understand in the first instance what we're talking about, but we're not going to give up trying to explain it. And, and we're going to do so in, in a patient context that recognizes, invites questions and invites skepticism 
because that's okay because of the confidence that we have. And I th- so in some ways, what's interesting about this idea of confidence is the more that you have, the more that you're able to invite really hard questions and engagement from people. And I think that's what people are looking for today. Yeah, I know one of my mentors, man, 20 years ago was talking about the idea of conscience and like the healthier your conscience, the more you can show up in spaces and not be offended, right? You're provoked to engage in conversation with people that might look and seem and believe very differently than you do. But by having a healthy conscience, you could show up in those spaces and and you weren't offended by it. You were ready to engage it. And I feel like today, a lot of people are kind of weak-minded in that. Like there's weaker consciences. They're unhealthy. They don't know how to sit in the spaces of of disagreement well. Um, and, and, you know, that's been the work, John, that we've been trying to do over many years through Q Ideas is create conversations and spaces where people can listen to one another, learn from one another, take in different perspectives, go form their own opinions, but hear a civil dialogue. And it seems to me, as I look to the future, we're going to need more and more spaces like that and more modeling like that. We can see people tiring of it. And and you almost get the sense, and, and the data has borne this out in several different studies where you see a lot of Americans, for example, do have pretty common ground views. They, they are kind of moderate people. And you've got these extreme polar right and polar lefts that get a lot of attention and make a lot of noise. And it makes us all think that everybody's one of these two categories. But most of us actually aren't that way. Have you seen that in some of your work? Oh, for sure. And whether it's... Um political adjacent work to what I do or in the law itself. I I do think that there are, pick your issue, there are lots of people who are more interested in a kind of legislative compromise than uh, some kind of mandate that dictates an outcome in in either direction. And, And this is, I think, an example where as citizens, a kind of greater civic engagement or willingness to look for compromises will be really important. Right now, we're in a a winner-take-all mentality where whoever wins the next election or whoever gets the next Supreme Court appointment seems to be uh, the arbiter of culture. And and I think that's, that's going to lead to increasingly unhealthy outcomes. Part of compromise in a political society is we don't get everything we want, and we, we live with tensions. We live with uh, unsatisfied policies. We live with some moral frameworks that are uh, contrary to what we believe, and that's that's part of the mess of living in a pluralistic society. If we only pursue the alternative of winning at all costs, then we're not going to be able to engage in the long run. Yeah, one of my great memories in life, probably always will be, was partnering with Tim Keller in the summer of 2012. And it was at a time when uh, President Obama had come out and supported gay marriage, and there was a big national conversation happening around that. And he and I, at the time, we lived in New York. I lived in New York as well. And we went um, and actually had an opportunity to have a meeting with the president. And the whole point of the conversation was pluralism. It was essentially begging the president to help our nation and to help people that we're going to be on different sides of this issue, understand that we can all still get along. We can all still talk to one another. We can respect that there's going to be different convictions around these issues and that the need of the hour would be leadership towards that direction. And over that summer, working with him on how to talk about that with other public leaders and, and how to move through that was was a great delight. But it was all around this topic because that's something Tim has cared so much about is Christians 
really grappling with their responsibility in the public square around this particular area that's needed in this hour more than ever. I'm curious for you and your experience with Tim, who so many people listening to this just have loved and respected really a decade later than when I had that experience with him. Um, how is Tim thinking about this today? And what, what are some of the areas in which you've learned from Tim about this confident pluralism idea? Tim, I think, is very consistent with who he's been for a long time. And and maybe that's, I think a lot of people sort of wonder what the secret sauce is. And, and maybe that's a big part of it is that he is, he models Christian virtues and in, in not just his public presence, but in his um in more private settings and he, he, you, you get what you see uh, and he, he's not, he hasn't let things go to his head. Uh, he, he is genuinely interested when he's talking with other people. And that's something that at the end of the day is very hard to fake. If you get into a position of prominence and get used to treating people as instruments or get used to getting things done for your own agenda, it's very hard to remain genuine in a personal circumstances. And I think Tim has maintained through a lot of his personal spiritual practices and the company that he keeps an ability to be very genuine in engaging with others. And and I think Tim is also, both in his own life and in the way that he counsels others, pointing people to the long narrative of Scripture, which is not an election cycle or a Supreme Court appointment, or even the lifespan of a nation, uh, but it's a much longer story that God controls and that we are, you know, playing a small part in. Yeah, no, that's great thoughts and tribute to just the way he has lived his life so faithfully and inspired. I know so many, um, and especially the closer, you know, you, you know someone's character by the closer you get to them, the more you want to be like them. And uh, that's certainly true of Tim and, and, and I know your life, my life, and many others. Um, well, tell us a little bit about this project, Uncommon Ground. You brought together so many different voices to be a part of it so that we could all benefit from some different perspectives. And you framed it in such a way that felt pretty practical and pretty usable. I mean, you you describe in here these different ways in which someone can approach this topic about how to frame our engagement, communicate our engagement, and then embody our engagement. Could you just take us through a synthesis of those three and those who might be listening who want to go deeper we would encourage them to get uncommon ground. Thanks, Gabe. I mean, the real impetus behind the book was when Tim and I started talking about the our mutual desire to share some of these ideas around pluralism with a, specifically a Christian audience in Christian uh, language. We we thought rather than just throw out our own thoughts or tell our own stories, this would be much more effective to have a community of friends tell their stories as part of this. And so the question we posed to this group of friends who joined us was, how are you living out gospel confidence in your own environment, which which is often placing you with, with non-Christians, which is often placing you in the public light, and, and what do you rely on to engage with others? And in and, and doing so, we assigned each of the contributors a particular role to take on. And so we, our, our friend Tish Harrison Warren, we asked her to think about what it means to be a writer, the writer in a pluralistic society, or or to to Sarah Groves, what does it mean to be a songwriter? To Rudy Caresco, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? And we talked, we asked each of the authors to talk through in chapter form their life stories, their experiences with these roles, and then ultimately trying to show readers that. God plays all of these roles in each of our lives, and He leads us in these different ways and gives us the 
the tools and the resources we need to engage whatever our vocational calling or or professional lane that we find ourselves in and by trying to draw from a variety of different voices within Christianity we wanted to model a, a pretty big tent of what it looks like to engage in this kind of work so far we've been really excited by the response the book initially released in April of 2020 when Amazon was not was not shipping books and so the pandemic uh, uh, hindered our, the initial launch of the book but we've we've gotten great feedback and especially I think pastors and ministry leaders seem to be engaging well with the material which is was was certainly one of our hopes yeah it's great well I want to conclude with this but you write a portion in here about the idea of the vocation of being a translator. Talk about that idea of translation and why that's so important. Yeah, so I, in the chapter, I, I start off by talking about how my professional calling as first a lawyer and now an educator constantly requires me to translate ideas to unfamiliar audiences. And that means, on the one hand, knowing my idea really well and also knowing my audience really well. And one of the things I try to explain in the chapter is that as Christians, we're all called to be translators to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, fellow students, for those of us who are in school. And that requires knowing that which we're translating, in other words, our Christian faith and our hope for the reason that we have. And it means knowing our audience, the person in front of us. And if, if we miss either of those, we're not going to be effective translators. And so part of our calling as Christians is to know really well the story and the hope that we have, and then to know really well the audience to whom we're speaking. Well, again, thank you for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons here on Faith Radio. So hope you enjoyed Gabe's conversation there with John Anazu about having a confident pluralism, living faithfully in a world of differences. Gabe, there were so many good points in your discussion with John, but that last point about being faithful translators of God's truth and kingdom ways to the world really stands out. So practical for each of us to know the story so well, but then know who we're talking with. Um, because we many times find ourselves in these places of division and polarization because we don't quite hear one another. We're just kind of missing each other barely. And the more we can take on that responsibility to try to get it right, I think the better uh, our conversations will be. Well, there's so many great principles here. And specifically in this book, Uncommon Ground, I want to commend it to you. It's a book that features Sarah Groves, Rudy Carrasco, Trillia Newbell, Lecrae, Claude Richard Alexander, Kristen Johnson, Tom Lynn, Shirley Hoekstra, Warren Kinghorn, so many people who are providing great perspectives for us to think well about how do we engage in a divided time and a divided society? And what do we as Christians bring to the table? I hope it encourages you and I look forward to the conversation we'll have next week. Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com.
To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.